Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we tell the true story behind movies based on a true story. Today we're going to talk about the movie Frost Nixon, a movie about the 1977 interviews between David Frost and former President Richard M. Nixon. The movie is directed by Ron Howard and stars Frank Langella as Nixon and Michael Sheen as David Frost. My guest for today's episode is my frequent collaborator, John Helix, a local musician in the San Diego area. Find him on Facebook and Twitter at John Helix Official. Our good friend Don, who is a self-described political junkie, also joins us to talk about the movie. I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to another area of the world that is listening to the show, and that is Glen Burnie, Maryland. Glen Burnie isn't a city. It's a county-designated place, a suburb which lies just 10 miles south of Baltimore, and it's known for being an affordable place to live with access to many stores by walking or mass transit. Thank you to everyone who's in Glen Burnie and is listening to the podcast. We appreciate it. Frost Nixon gets a 7.7 out of 10 rating from the Internet Movie Database, a 93% rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and an 80% rating from Metacritic. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor for Frank Langella at the Golden Globes and the Academy Awards. The film only won awards, though, from the Las Vegas Film Critics Society, where it won for Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor for Langella, as well as awards for Best Editing and Best Screenplay. We're going to take a look at how Frost Nixon is as a movie, and how it is as a medium to document the history of interviews that have come to be known as a cathartic experience for the American people and a triumph of journalism. These interviews are seen as a moment when Nixon was finally able to tell the truth after his resignation. We will rate Frost Nixon as entertainment and as fact and give a score at the end of the episode. There will be spoilers in the discussion. Just a quick note as you enter the conversation. Just before you're going to join us, we were listening to Billy Joel's song, Captain Jack. Since we can't afford the rights to have the song on the podcast, just know that when you join the conversation, we are talking about Billy Joel. If you're ready, let's get started. And if not, just hit pause. We'll still be here. Oh, everybody, I ever knew in my whole life is here. <laughs> what is that from? When he played Nassau Coliseum. <laughs> So it's a song about a guy. It's a song about a guy. Song he plays about piano. He plays the piano. His but, name was Bill. He's in a bar. Well, I'd like to see if that Nassau Coliseum show is. And this one goes out to you. It's about you. <laughs> <laughs> this is your choice here, sir. Oh. Because you wanted to do this one. Yeah. Now, why did you want to do Frost Nixon? I'm curious because, well, of your age and what is your interest? Because, I, I mean, I was born in 69. I don't have a personal recollection of all of this going on. No. Because no. I wasn't paying attention when I was five or six. Don probably was. <laughs> what are your memories of Watergate? <laughs> Were you conscious of this at the time as a five or six-year-old? I wasn't conscious specifically of the Frost Nixon interviews, but I was often the only child surrounded by adults who were exceptionally politically engaged and expected that if I was going to engage in conversation, then I would know a certain amount of what I was talking about. So I was reading Doonesbury by the age of six or seven and probably some of the articles in the New York Times a little after that we always had news on we always had news magazines in the house and I was surrounded by politically minded people so it was very much on my mind and I was aware as aware of it as a five or six or seven year old could be and of the sea changes happening in our country 
So the adults might be sitting there going, he's a bum, he's a crook. And five or six-year-old Don is going, well, I'm not a fan of the socioeconomic policies, but. It was probably flipped, but something, <laughs> <laughs> something along those lines, sure. And, and how familiar are you with David Frost, Don? I'm not very familiar with him. Just from the movie and from the original interviews to whatever extent I was familiar with them originally and how they played out in Nixon's public persona. Okay. And John, your uh, your context for David Frost? Oh, zero. zero. Okay, great. Well, sounds like we're going to learn about David Frost today. We're going to learn about the Frost-Nixon interviews that take place. So let's go ahead and talk about the plot of Frost-Nixon, movie directed by Ron Howard, based on a play which came out on London's West End in 2006. And one of the things that's really nice and really rare in film is that the two actors who did the play were also the people who starred in the movie. That is really rare to see. Because we have Frank Langella as Richard M. Nixon, and we have Michael Sheen, who is playing David Frost. So we're going to learn a little bit about David Frost and who he was, and we're also going to share some things that you probably don't know about the interviews that will shed a different light on it. But let's start, as we always do, by talking about the plot of the movie. In 1974, David Frost was a talk show host in Australia when U.S. President Richard Nixon resigned the office of the presidency. Still, to date, the only president to do so, Frost reached out to, the, to interview Nixon, an opportunity for David Frost, who was known for interviewing celebrities, and an opportunity for Nixon to salvage his reputation. Frost pays Nixon $600,000 to interview him. The movie says CBS was offering $350,000. Nixon views Frost as an interviewer he can take advantage of in the situation to improve his stature. Frost and his producer, John Burt, travel to California to meet with Nixon. On the plane, he flirts with a young woman named Caroline Cushing, and they begin a relationship. Frost is not successful in selling the interview to the big three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, partly because he's paid Nixon for the interview. Frost decides to finance the project and syndicate the broadcast of the interviews. He hires Bob Zelnick, played by Oliver Platt, and James Reston, played by Sam Rockwell. And, and you know what? I'm sorry. For me, put Oliver Platt in anything and I'm happy. Mm. I'm a big fan of Oliver Platt. I just... Sam Rockwell was great. Sam Rockwell's great, but Oliver Platt just, oh my God, he brings it every time. He is so good. Frost is unsure of what he wants from Nixon in the interview, and Reston tells him to get a confession from Nixon. Before the first interview begins, Nixon asks Frost about his slip-on Italian loafers and says, they're a bit effeminate, aren't they? In order to get into Frost's head. During the interviews, Frost loses control as Nixon, the seasoned politician that he is, talks at length about his accomplishments as he runs out the clock on the contractually obligated time frame for each episode. Frost's editorial team becomes nervous about Frost's interviewing technique, and he is angry that Nixon may be able to take advantage of the form to exonerate himself. Four days before the final interview, Nixon, while drunk, calls Frost to tell him the final interview will make or break both of them. Nixon compares himself to Frost as an underdog, and he tells him he will do everything he can to be the victor at the end of the interview. The phone call inspires Frost, and he prepares relentlessly. He has Reston pursue a lead at the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. As the final interview begins, Frost ambushes Nixon with the information found by Reston, and when confronted with this information, Nixon admits he did unethical things, adding, when the president does it, it isn't illegal. Frost is on the verge of getting a confession from Nixon when Jack Brennan, Nixon's post-presidential chief of staff, stops the interview. After Brennan talks with Nixon, the interview resumes, and Nixon admits he participated in a cover-up and let the American people down. After the interview, Frost and Caroline visit Nixon at his villa as they head out of town. They wish each other well. Frost gives Nixon a pair of shoes. They are the shoes that Nixon had asked about at the first interview. Nixon admits that he doesn't remember what they talked about when he made that drunk phone call. 
So, movie Frost Nixon, the the screenwriter uh, of this, refers to it as an intellectual Rocky film. Really, an intellectual Rocky? Intellectual no, Rocky I don't movie. see that at all. No, no there's too much. No, no. come on. There, there's, there's, uh, to me, Rocky is a story. It's a Cinderella story of a very deeply ethical yet dri- driven but very inarticulate man. I don't see any parallel between those two. I'm befuddled by how that would even be a comparison. That makes no sense. You know, I can kind of see it because you have Frost as an interviewer in this film. He's knocked down in the first round. Oh, no. Knocked down in the second round. Knocked down in the third. Well, they do everything but a montage after the phone call. Suddenly, he's inspired after that drunk phone call from Nixon to really get his shit together, start bearing down, start doing and research. Chickens. And chase What do you mean chase chickens? So Rocky does. When Mick, Mick, Mickey comes back and he's like... There Dick. you go. Yeah. Yeah. Or like Tanya Harding carrying the water coolers on her shoulders. Yeah. yeah. But... Uh, no. But yeah. And then he comes back... No, and, stop. You're insulting Rocky. Stop and it. And he gets the confession from Nixon that Nixon should give. No. No, you don't mm, see it. No. It just doesn't. Not not in the tone or no. the the feel of the movie or the, even the content. No, come on. The content. Of, about the content of the self, movie. The content of character. A self serving, a self serving interviewer who's going into it at least as the movie portrays it to make his comeback and a the fucking deadbeat low life politician of our time hitherto right mm-hmm. up to now. <laughs> I mean, come on, Rocky material. Did you did you stand up and cheer at the end of Frost v. Nixon? No, I don't. Why not? That's the point. Uh, no one no one got up and cheered for Frost. Okay. It is it is No, this is not okay. <laughs> I'm speechless in Bad it's, comparison. Bad comparison. I am speechless in its lack of okayness. Peter Morgan says it's an intellectual Rocky movie. You don't agree. Who is, wait, who is Peter Morgan? The playwright. What is the he? guy who wrote this play? Is Peter Morgan? He's saying his own work. He's comparing his own work as an intellectual Rocky movie. Oh, horse shit! And doesn't that diminish the intellectual nature of Rocky? I mean, give me a fucking break. Rocky's not an intellectual movie, but Frost v. Nixon is. Oh, okay, okay. You guys aren't big fans of Peter Morgan right now. I promise you. By the end of our discussion, you're going to like him even less. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> if this is where we're starting, we do not have far to go here. Just just giving you fair warning. But I do want to say uh, there are a few interesting things about the movie itself and the production of it in that they use some real locations that had to do with the Frost-Nixon interviews. For instance, I found it interesting that remember when Frank Langella as Nixon is on the step of Marine One mm-hmm. as Nixon's yeah. leaving the White House? He's on the step of the Marine One that Nixon was on when he did that same thing. And the reason why is because the production reached out to the Nixon Library, and they weren't sure if the Nixon Library was going to be interested in being part of this project at all. But here's what I found in my research that's really interesting from people who knew Nixon, which is they have, they have a love of this man but they're very pragmatic of what happened. They know the events are the events. They know what happened. They make no excuses for it. And the Nixon Library found the script was fair. So they were happy to work with the production. Not only did they allow them to use the Marine One, but they also reached out to the guy who owns Casa Pacifica, Nixon's former home, and because he's a member of the board of the Nixon Library. And he allowed them to use it for three days for filming. So when they're filming at Nixon's home, they were really filming at Nixon's home. They also really used the street and the exterior of the Smith home where the interviews took place. So when they're walking up to that front door, that is the actual house that they used. Did the... Well, I'm highly suspicious of the motivation behind that. Behind what? The Nixon Library being happy-go-lucky about this film being... Oh, I didn't say they were happy-go-lucky. They said they were fine with it. 
they f- they thought the script was fair. Oh, the script was fair. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, eh, I don't know. Attempt to humanize a, a demon. That would be my initial reaction. What, I mean, so you his, his reputation is so tarnished. I I felt I felt like the film humanizes him in a certain way. Is that a bad thing? Um, for the leader of the free world, yes, it's a zero sum game. You are not allowed to do that. You are you are you are not allowed to have that level of tricky dick nuance to your to your fucking your psyche in terms of the mistakes that you make fuck that they follow you like like caesar and you don't get a second shot your average citizen yes absolutely you're the leader of the free fucking world and you're that corrupt you don't get a second chance and you don't get a second chance at being a human at being again because let's i mean let's be face it let's let's face it was was richard nixon a human being when he was being a politician in all of the things that you would define as what makes someone human you mean like making errors? No, that's existing. I'm talking okay. about going into a more human space where you consider reflection and ethics and what it means to be good and what wrong is and what right is. And for Nixon, none of that existed. He's not a human being in that sense or wasn't. Even since his college days, he's always been like that. What do you base that on? I base that on everything I've read about him. He's been the underdog his whole life. Mm. And he's been this figure who's created these fantasies around his own existence and created this narrative around himself that basically the ends justify the means for whatever political ends he I mean whatever he wants i at that point you've lost humanity and i don't think you you get a chance i don't think you get a second chance okay well i'm gonna go ahead and ask this question out of four stars what would you give the movie the movie as a movie as a movie because you just spoke pretty harshly about the movie Humanizing Richard Nixon. Yeah, and so I would say I think it's a really good movie. Yeah. In that, in, as a movie. Okay. And uh, what would you give it? Oh. One to four stars. Three five, probably. A 3.5? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. Don? I'm teetering between a three and a 3.5. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's entertaining. And I think what we'll talk about more later, the license they took didn't feel necessarily inappropriate. It felt like something that follows the formula of these sorts of movies that brings you in. Yeah. I thought the movie did a good job at developing tension where it needed to. It did a good job at presenting that there were stakes for both of them. But one of the problems I have with this movie is the same problem I have with good night and good luck which is I don't think Frost Nixon was written just to present the interviews and what happened. I think it was written as a response to the George W. Bush presidency and the lies about why we went into Iraq. And I think when you use another historical event as a retort to current events, you have a tendency to put a greater emphasis on Stakes that may not have been there. You have a greater tendency to put an importance on the events that might not have been shared by the American public at the time. And we'll take a closer look at all that as we go through. But but I think that's just really one of the things that skews the film for me, which is you can tell it's written in response. The play came out, was uh, performed in 2006. The movie came out in 2008. And in many ways, uh, this movie could just as easily be a response to the current presidency that we have. I mean, add in some Caligula, and then, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you got yeah. So, so for me, I think there, there's there's certain the motive is different than just presenting a history or presenting a story about two people. Yeah. The motive is really to respond to current events, at least in part. Okay. Okay, so so for me, I think I'd give the film a three. Three. I'd go with three on that. All right, well, we're going to take a look at the facts. And in this portion of the podcast, we'll talk about how the facts were presented in the film and the historical and factual accuracy of each item. At the end, we're going to give the film a letter grade. So let's go ahead and take a look at it. David Frost, what was in the movie? 
David Frost is shown as a talk show host in Australia who sees an opportunity to increase his stature by interviewing Richard Nixon. He pays Nixon $600,000 for 24 hours of his time for the interviews. What really happened? David Frost got his start in British television hosting a satirical news program called That Was the Week That Was. Think of it as The Daily Show on BBC in the early 1960s. Or Wait, Last that Week was Tonight? Him? That was him. Oh, okay. That was the week that was. Okay. And one thing that's interesting about David Frost is he also managed to change the mold of what a commentator and interviewer can be. Because of his cadence, because of his vocal delivery, it wasn't very polished. It wasn't, you know, he groomed and professional. But the public liked him. And the public liked him on that program. And it started to open doors for people who didn't fit the mold of what a quote-unquote interviewer would be. He became known for his interviews with celebrities and political figures. He interviewed eight British prime ministers that served between 1964 and 1982. He also interviewed the seven U.S. presidents in office between 1969 and 2008. He was no lightweight in interviewing political figures. He interviewed many of the members of Nixon's cabinet during the run of his show, The David Frost Show. In fact, Frost interviewed Nixon during Nixon's 1968 presidential run. What they show in the movie of them meeting for the first time at Casa Pacifica wasn't their first time meeting. On top of that, Frost also emceed a Christmas gala at Nixon's White House. These two men knew each other. They knew each other before they met for the interviews. When Frost and Nixon got together to discuss the interviews in 1974, Frost had been working at, at a talk show in Australia, a move that seemed to be a drop down the ladder compared to his time in the BBC. Frost had business interests in television shows taking place in the United States and Britain during the time period in this film. The film even shows him as a producer of uh, it was called The Slipper in the Rose, I think, which was a Cinderella story. He was a movie producer as well. There have been references, I found, to an interview he did with Rupert Murdoch, founder of Fox News, in 1969. I have not been able to find the interview itself, but what I've read about it says that it was tense, that David Frost was sarcastic towards Murdoch, that he wasn't taking any of the shit Murdoch was dishing out. And some people have gone so far as to say, this interview is what caused Rupert Murdoch to leave England for Australia. How wonderful, wonderful for the world. So what does this say about the petty sociopathic narcissists like Rupert Murdoch, who apparently now went to Australia because he was so wounded by this? Mm -hmm. And the parallels with Trump supposedly running because Obama made a joke mm -hmm. about him running for president. I don't know. I mean, when you have that much power and you're that petty and that fragile and thin-skinned and weak, yeah. is this what you do with your money? You, pull, you amass power to punish anyone who questioned your authority, your right to exist, and your right to be of a certain class that gets privileges the rest of us don't certainly falls along the lines of richard nixon's uh upbringing and yeah. and mm -hmm. biography well because those of us who don't have the money uh that a rupert murdoch or a donald trump do we have to get our power supposedly supposedly have to get our power from other places which means self-confidence which means uh doing what we can in the world which means being a good person and if your power is entirely built on the power and money you create, once someone questions that, that's a wound to your ego. Mm -hmm. So, that's David Frost. You think he's a little more interesting than the film put forward? Yeah, he, he seems rather shallow in the film. He was a playboy. He basically... I, I didn't... But that's, that's more of the, the playboy. I, 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 he seems like like a dotard in the film let's at least as he's initially portrayed until he finally gets his act together and cr does the all-night study session and comes yeah. in you know, uh -huh. yeah. right. 
Pygmalion, yeah. he imagined. <laughs> no, this is a guy who knew his stuff yeah. on the business side and the political side. Most definitely, he knew how to hold interviews. He knew questions to ask people. However, on the other hand, no one ever knew his political leanings. That's to uh, his advantage. There is a thought out there. He never even voted. So he was so apolitical that he could just go in and interview anyone along the political spectrum and they wouldn't come in with preconceived notions about him. A and he was so busy, he basically lived on the Concorde airplane because he was shuttling between the U.S. and Great Britain all the time. A and just to mention, since we talked about Caroline Cushing a little bit, they didn't meet on the plane. And at the time of the interviews, they had been in a relationship for five years, which it just seems strange to me in the movie and in the play that, hi, how are you? I'm David Frost. You want to come hang out with a disgraced president with me? <laughs> it seems like an odd way to start a relationship. Well, it seems like an odd choice, <clears throat> too, for the five. It seems unnecessary. I mean, except to create some spontaneous excitement. Well, I don't know. But... David Frost was asked about how their meeting was portrayed. And he said, my understanding is that it's much less expensive to have two airplane seats on a theater stage than to build an entire set to show how we really met. But why do they have to show how they met? I mean, there are many stories that are told that start in the midst of a relationship. They don't have to give the background. I mean, this makes her nothing more than... Arm candy? An arm candy. They've completely diminished her. They make her mm -hmm. just one of those tools that they use in movies to be the... I'm here for you. Oh, you've had such a tough day. Here's my boobs. I mean, and she seems like she was a knowledgeable, powerful, professional woman in her own right. She was. And to have her written off like that is nothing more than his dalliance while he's interviewing Nixon mm -hmm. is insulting and diminishing. It seemed, I, I was surprised when she said yes, too. I mean, not be, given the conventions of a film, I was not surprised, but just in the context of the film, it seemed odd that she would say yes to that. It, it did. I thought the same thing. Kind of took me out of it a little bit when I watched it because here he is off to do this deal for these interviews, which according to the film have so much weight attached to them. And he's picking up a girl on an airplane to hang out with while he's in Los Angeles, yeah. which to me would seem like more of a distraction. I don't know. That wasn't the movie I tuned in for. When it seemed to add that to that idea that you had that it portrayed him as so shallow. Oh, yeah. It was just adding to that on top of it. Yeah. Let's go ahead and talk about President Richard Milhouse Nixon. It's not Mo? <laughs> Mo to his friends. Mo Nixon is first shown given his checker speech after he resigned his position of President of the United States. He is a pariah. And he sees the interviews being offered by Frost as a way to make himself relevant again. At one point between the third and fourth interview, Nixon calls Frost in a drunken rage and tries to intimidate him and says, we're going to make those motherfuckers choke. This inspires Frost to do some extra research and prepare for the next interview. What really happened? What really happened was Richard Nixon was in a rough place. As the only president to resign the presidency to date, he had mounting legal bills. He was in danger of not being able to pay his staff. He was in a self-imposed exile and would not accept interview requests. David Frost offered him $500,000, as the movie shows, for 24 hours of interviews to be aired on American television. Swifty Lazar, Nixon's literary agent, who had recently earned Nixon $2 million fee for his memoirs, was able to increase the amount from Frost to $600,000. Director Ron Howard admits that the scene with the phone call is an embellishment, but Nixon was known for making those types of calls during the Watergate affair. According to Jack Brennan, who's the chief of staff post-presidential for Nixon, he frequently heard Nixon use the term son of a bitch, but never heard him use the F word. Another thing I found that was interesting regarding the drunken phone call is during Watergate, the, his cabinet knew that if they got a phone call from Nixon saying, it's a go, we're going, 
uh, they knew that they needed to check with Ehrlichman or they needed to check with someone else to make sure what was going on, which sounds a little familiar to what's happening mm. today. Yeah, just uh, we, we just don't talk about it. <laughs> it's just an open secret an open across se- the plains. <laughs> it's, it's like we have this huge American family and no one wants to talk about yeah. the uncle who's in the Oval Office. Yeah, that orange fuck the angry drunk racist uncle who keeps ruining thanksgiving and every other day of the year yeah you got it yeah that's it exactly so that was we're talking about richard nixon right Uh, sure (laughs) so yeah richard nixon was in a tough place he need he did it because he needed the money basically so let's go ahead and talk about the interviews here because this is where things are going to get really really interesting In the movie, negotiations took place between Frost's team and Nixon's team regarding the topics to be discussed and the length of time for the interviews. Frost's team wants Frost to extract an apology from Nixon, and Nixon's team wants Nixon to run out the clock talking about his international achievements in order to minimize the focus on Watergate. Frost is outperformed by Nixon in the first three or four interviews, but after a member of his team is able to get additional information in the form of a transcript, He uses this information to throw Nixon off balance. Through his skills as an interviewer and against the interference of Nixon's chief of staff, Frost is able to get Nixon to apologize for his actions to the American people. Really, still not a Rocky movie then? No. No, okay, just checking. Rocky apologizes at the end? No. The underdog comes through. There's no underdog. Stop it. Okay. So let's talk about what really happened. Frost and Nixon did agree to 24 hours of interviews. Not only did Frost pay Nixon $600,000, he also guaranteed Nixon 20% of the profits from the syndication of the interviews. And this puts a different spin on things, because this is no longer just a fee to do the interviews. Nixon now has skin in the game. As one source I found said, they're now in business together. They are in business to create good programming. And to David Frost's credit, and it's said in the movie, because the big three networks didn't do it, and he put together this deal to sell the syndication, for that night he essentially created a fourth network. Because 45 million people tuned in to watch the interviews overall. The interviews were not nearly as contentious as the film would make them out to be. In fact, Frost says the two teams got along like friendly legal teams. So this this whole fighting that you see taking place, or the glares between the teams as they're walking into the Smith house, that wasn't happening. The climax of the movie comes when Frost gets Nixon to say about Watergate, if the president does it, it isn't illegal. This is going to be the part where you like the screenwriter less. According to Ken Kachigi and a longtime Nixon aide, Nixon did say this in the interviews, but he didn't say it about Watergate. He was talking about the Houston plan, a secret White House wiretap operation aimed at officials suspected of leaking national security information. Nixon claimed that legally, as a wartime president, He had the authority to order wiretaps as part of his executive power, which I mentioned that this movie is a response to what was happening during George W. Bush's presidency. What did George W. Bush also assert? Wartime authority. Suspension of habeas corpus. Mm -hmm. Wiretaps Mm -hmm. that received approval without any of the typical channels, without anyone knowing. Yep. Now, on the director's commentary of the DVD, Ron Howard says something really interesting regarding this change. And this is where I think we need to have a big discussion on this, because I think this really goes to the core of what we talk about on the podcast regarding creative license. Ron Howard said, this is one of the editorial choices that Peter Morgan did that was extremely artful, a kind of creative license Although it comes from the transcripts, this moment where Nixon says, if the president does it, then it isn't illegal. 
is something that was actually said in a different interview. I remember talking to people from his staff who just winced when he said that. It was an important moment in the interviews. Peter Morgan felt it was so rich and so significant, it had to be used somewhere. But you couldn't build an entire scene around it. So when he had the idea when he was writing the play to use it and build it into this climactic Watergate conversation, it worked beautifully. Not 100% accurate, but I think it continues to reflect the important ideas of the interviews in a very dramatic way. So here's the discussion. We're talking about what we could call a historical record here, which are the transcripts from the Um, interviews. Is it just creative license to take that line out of another context and use it for the climax regarding Watergate? Because my thought on it is the majority of people who weren't of the age to watch the interviews are probably not going to go back and watch the interviews. No, their consciousness will be shaped by it. Where they're going to get their information is from this movie. And taking that line and using it for Watergate puts Watergate in a different context and it puts Nixon's motives in a different context. Is this fair to do? I mean, I'm looking at this thinking, if this is being done purely for the purpose of creating the climax of the story, that's not a good reason to do it. Because Mm -hmm. what you're doing is you are changing people's views on a historical event, in this case, Watergate, and the motives behind it. See, to me, that doesn't matter to a screenwriter or a director or a producer. None of that figures into any decision-making. Okay, but as a viewer of the film. Yeah, I don't care. You don't care? No. Really? Well, I I don't watch films to learn history. You know what I mean? Like, it's not... That's not my source mm-hmm. when I want to know about Richard Nixon. It would be entertainment. Okay. So it, it's a lot of creative license. It's probably unfair to Nixon, but in the grand, it doesn't affect my opinion of the film. I'm not a fan of when they change history that much, even though, like you, I don't go to movies to get historical context or to learn about historical events. It's just something that no matter what story is being told, when there's that much creative license that's taken, it just, it doesn't sit well with me, this idea that we can, there's this idea of fact, and then there's also this idea of putting forth a sense of truth, a sense of trueness in the story. And I think it changes it, and it doesn't give a sense of trueness to the story. I think he did enough horrible, illegal, unethical, morally bankrupt things that they didn't need to do that. I don't think you would get the reaction, though. You wouldn't get the theater reaction. I don't think that that's on a director or producer's mind. How true am I being to the story? I think it's what will make this the best story. But ethically, shouldn't it be? be- of course. Be- I've, because yeah, yeah. this movie's based on true events. And, and what's put forth in the movie is it was so important to get this apology from Nixon for the good of the American people since he was pardoned. And, and that is put forward several times in the movie by Reston's character, mm-hmm. who is supposed to be the voice of the American people in this film. But it's so important to do that apparently what was really said is insignificant and doesn't meet the mark. Mm. Sorry, I don't, I, it just doesn't, I don't care. Wow. See, and I think the movie portrays them both in a much better light than they actually deserve. And I think that is in part because it makes it a better movie going experience. Right, you get oh the... God! To listen to Richard Nixon, the, a, a a perfect caricature of Richard Nixon would be horrifying. Yeah. And if you went into transcripts, I mean, good God, release the Oval Office tapes. Yeah. So you have put that into the script. Yeah. So you have what's essentially these two men who went into a business agreement 
so that they could each shore up their financial and or business prospects. So Hollywood and Washington. Am I getting am I getting this? This this seems to be what it was. So it's not this sense that either the public got who didn't know about the payments and the agreements or the movie viewer who isn't otherwise familiar with it. They get this sense of (gasps) Frost got him. Mm -hmm. Right. He didn't get him. They had this agreement that they needed good ratings when they syndicated to make money. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this is this business partnership. And I think this movie and the play put them both in a better light mm. than either of them earned. But I, I get it. It gets some, it tells a story. Yes. It was probably a response to George Bush, but was it adequate if you have two people who are so cynical making money off of their what's purported to be an honest interview and what is strictly a business deal to benefit each of them? Oh, and we aren't even to the full degree of the business deal and how it was put together. I will say first that the Colson transcript, that is a MacGuffin in the movie, Reston just has to get this in order for Frost to have an upper hand. It was already known to the Watergate prosecutors, but they already had information they felt was more incriminating. It wasn't a document that wasn't known. What wound up happening is at the end of the 24 hours of interview, Nixon's chief of staff, Jack Brennan, was approached, as told by Frost that they needed a little more, and they didn't have money to pay for more time. Uh, He took Brennan out to lunch and told him if they did not get some extra time, they might have to cut out parts of the interview, like China. A little negotiating taking place there. Nixon's biographer Jonathan Atkins says that Frost sent his producer John Burt to Brennan. According to Brennan, and this is from Jack Brennan specifically, uh, the character who runs in and stops the interview, according to Brennan, he said, This has been terrible. We need more time. Brennan says his reaction was, my immediate reaction was, tough. We've kept our side of the deal. The taping is over. But later I talked it over with my staff. We all agreed that Nixon should voluntarily go further and express some regret. So I went to see the boss and I said to him, listen, if this ends the way it has, the world is going to say, there goes the same old Nixon. At first, Nixon was curtly dismissive of this criticism, but Brennan and his team persisted. Let me repeat that. The team that is there to help Nixon persisted on Nixon that he needs to give an apology. Their argument was that some expression of regret for Watergate needed to be put on the record. Nixon's team granted Frost four more hours of interviews with Nixon, During the time between interviews, Nixon and his team worked to craft the words he would say when admitting guilt for Watergate. During the last interview, Frost cross-examined Nixon in an interrogating manner. According to Frost, Brennan came out where the taping was happening, something he had not done before. He held up a sign that said, Let Him Talk. Frost thought the sign said, Let Us Talk, and called for a break in the interview that they had to change tapes. So in the movie, it's Brennan stopping everything. Brennan's intent was not to stop everything. Frost stopped it because he misunderstood what the sign said. I, I, I have so much going on in my head right now. I, and all I keep thinking about is how much difference is there between Hollywood, theater, and politics And this also makes me think of a comment from a previous podcast that your guest Diana brought up, which is about these teams who are there to help someone create a public persona. Mm -hmm. And he does have this team in the Los Angeles area. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I don't know how many of them were from the entertainment industry and how many were from the political machine. And how much difference it may or may not make, other than in the 
basic information that feeds your decision making around protecting that person's public reputation or reestablishing it. Well, and like I said earlier, people who are with Nixon are pragmatic. So what they're doing here is they're looking at what Nixon's goal is. Nixon's goal is to be relevant again. He wants to be brought in for policy discussions. He wants to be the old man on foreign policy because even with Watergate, he excelled there. He did a great job with China. He did a great job with international affairs. And he wants to be brought back into the fold and be an advisor on those things. His team knows this. So how do you get there? If people finish watching the interviews and just go, well, we didn't get anything there. He hasn't changed. He's the same he always was. He's not going to get those opportunities. So we have Brennan and Frost talking. And Brennan is telling Frost that you aren't going to get what you're looking for by cross-examining him. You just need to let him talk and let him get there on his own. And that is when Frost put his clipboard down. Because there aren't questions for him to ask at this point. Frost knows what is coming because the head of Nixon's team has told him what's coming. There's no further questions Frost needs to ask. He just needs to let Nixon roll it out. And that's what we end up seeing in the Watergate interviews, is Nixon being able to to say it. In the movie, Nixon says, I was involved in a cover-up. But what Nixon said in the actual interview is, I know what you want me to say. You want me to say I was involved in a cover-up? No. So that's another area where the movie falsifies the actual climax of the interviews. This was not a winner-takes-all battle royale as the movie presented. This was a mutual benefit society with both sides looking for something out of the arrangement. Both sides got money. It's estimated Nixon took in about a million dollars from the interview with the syndication profits. And he was asked to give more talks and became the advisor he was hoping to become as a result of the interview. Frost gained stature and money. A British poll found that Frost-Nixon interviews were the best interviews of all time. An interview between Kirstie Young and Morrissey for the program Desert Island Disc came in second. Wait, uh, based on what, what measurement? Just best of all time. Just a public poll. Oh. Yeah. Uh, David Frost died in 2013. And his, his New York Times obituary is titled, David Frost, the man who got Nixon to apologize, dies at 74. Not well. the man who got Nixon a million bucks. Hollywood and Hollywood for ugly people meet. Oh, right? I mean, what, what else is there to say? I mean, it's, if you're under any illusion that Washington is not a giant fucking theater. Mm-hmm. Here we have it. The business and the show. I mean, this was just cynicism at its clearest and most overt. On which side? All of them. All Everyone of involved. Well, I guess I'll just go ahead and ask. A letter grade for the movie for Truth. Don, what would you give it? C minus. C minus with all that a C minus that seems a little high. Okay, fine, well, a D minus. <laughs> well, I mean, if you want to hold to a C minus, nah. where, where do you see truth coming through here? That there was a guy named Frost and a guy named Nixon, and there were interviews. And, and, that, and that, that hits average for you, bottom line of average. Well, it's a lower end. Well, I'll give it a D plus. D plus. Okay, John, solid what? D. Solid D. I'm going. I'm going solid D as well. Wow, this was. This episode wasn't as much fun as I, Tanya. I had more fun in this. episode. You had more fun, uh, if, really? If, if, if we can put a fucking blowhard in a in a punching bag and slap him around, that's a that's an hour of fun. <laughs> Come on, some people need some shaming. Okay, perpetual okay. shaming. Okay, that's that's one thing I will give Nixon a modicum of credit for. He had the capacity ah, for shame. Yeah. He had there the capacity go. for shame or he, However incremental. Right. Yeah. 
Otherwise, he would have had no moral context for recognizing that people expected an apology, whether he wanted to make it or not or felt it was justified or not, and he would not have resigned. There's a silver lining even in Richard Milhouse Nixon. Right, which I think is in stark contrast to what we are currently experiencing. No, he's tough. <laughs> he's tough. Nick- Nixon or Trump? No, Trump. Oh, he's oh. tough. He, you know, he was, Nixon was his favorite president. And yeah. Jackson, I'm sorry, or, or Andrew Jackson and Richard Nixon. I mean, how can you go wrong with those two hey, yeah. as your influences? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have to say what I've seen of Nixon as a person. He'd be fun to have a beer with. Ew. Nixon? Yes. yes. No. Uh, I'd be worried what he wants uh, from me. Uh, I would count my fingers after shaking his hand. You know, Hunter really? S- you know, Hunter S. Thompson interviewed him in a car for 45 minutes. Al- really? Alone in the backseat. Wow. During the, the 68 presidential campaign. And? They talked about football because the press, the, the people, his handler said, you can't ask about anything. You can't ask about Vietnam. You can't ask about uh, Really? All of this is off limits, but if you want to talk football, you can talk football. 45-minute conversation. About football. About football, because Nixon was a football freak. So was Andreas Thompson. No kidding. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> now it's time for us to fact-check ourselves. We come to these conversations prepared, but sometimes we find ourselves going in a direction we weren't prepared for, And we mention some bad information. Or we just completely make stuff up. For instance, I had no idea that Don would want to know if anyone on Nixon's team had a background in show business. Other than Nixon's agent, Swifty Lazar, who was an entertainment attorney, the other members of Nixon's team did not have any background in show business. Frank Gannon, played by Kevin Bacon in the film, studied economics and was a tobacco lobbyist. Ken Kachigian worked on the Nixon presidential campaign. Diane Sawyer came to the Nixon White House after she was a weather person on a local station, and she came in as an assistant to the press secretary. Sawyer was also part of the team whose goal was to prove that John Dean was lying during the Watergate scandal, and she was also one of the people suspected of being deep throat the whistleblower who helped to break the Watergate scandal. Well, that wraps up another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. If you liked it, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere except Spreaker. Is anyone really on Spreaker? That's a funny name. Spreaker... You can find all the sources that we use to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash frostnixon. I usually throw some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures. For Frost Nixon, I found a video clip that shows real life and the film side by side so you can see how the movie added extra emphasis to certain phrases for dramatic effect. There's also an entertaining phone call between Nixon and a newspaper reporter where Nixon shares everything he has just learned about panda sex. Yes, you heard that right. It's Richard Nixon talking about panda sex. How are we doing on this project? Send us your feedback through our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com, and you can recommend which movies you would like us to use for an episode, And we will tell the true story behind that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone.